for today's podcast. This is the second interview Dave and I ever recorded uh, when we first started recording our interviews for Lunch with Legs all the way back in the spring of 2013. And unfortunately, we had an audio cabling problem as we were still learning our way around our software and our equipment. So unfortunately, this uh, interview had to be put off for a while until we found some help to correct a major and incredibly annoying audio buzz and tone that permeated the entire podcast. And I want to give a very special shout out and a huge thanks to the one and only Nikki Nickers, who saved our proverbial asses by running this uh, interview through all of her sound equipment and basically eliminating the buzz. But just so you guys know, you will need to turn up the volume on this particular episode because it is very quiet as a result of the audio correction that had to happen. Uh, it is an incredible episode, and there is a reason that we really stuck to our guns and said we want this podcast episode to happen, uh, and you'll find out why soon enough. So just FYI, be sure you turn up your volume when it gets to the interview, and uh, yeah, enjoy yourselves. On with the show. <laughs> Legs Malone here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Lunch with Legs podcast. I am so excited to bring you the wonderful Peter Aguero on today's episode. Peter is a longtime contributor and uh, slam winner of The Moth, both the podcast and the live events. If you have no idea what that is, I highly recommend checking out themoth.org. Uh, he is also a member of the BTK band who probably by the time this podcast airs will have had their last show for now. You can always hope for a reunion show. Without further ado, I bring to you the wonderful Peter Aguero. Lunch with Legs. So ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to have with us today the extraordinary talent, storyteller, man about town, popular personality, a good friend of mine. Please welcome to the Lunch of Legs podcast, Mr. Peter Aguero. Hello. Thank you, Legs. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, yeah. How I'm, are you? I'm all right. You hanging tough in the summertime? It's up hot, and down, hot. Man. Strikes and gutters. I don't like, I just don't like, I can't, I'm not built, because I, I sweat in the shower. I, <laughs> I sweat in the snow, I sweat all the time everywhere. It is so. not an easy, uh, summertime is not fun, um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that was totally a knock at the door, that's <laughs> fine. Donnie, you can come in! Here at the Lunch of Legs podcast, we like to do things on a budget, a.k.a. in my apartment. <laughs> and so that's my boyfriend entering. He's just going to go hide in the bedroom. Donnie, you can come in. Oh, come on, vomit. <laughs> yeah, dog. You're killing me. You're killing me, vomit. 
Yeah, and that, that dog barking in the background is the dog we're currently dog sitting. It's a veritable goddamn zoo. In it is. It is. It's a, it's a goddamn animal menagerie. We have a very smelly dog who's been swimming in a lake. We have a cat who's been rescued off the streets in Brooklyn. It's a low-budget zoo. It's a very low-budget zoo. <laughs> but a zoo nonetheless. But a zoo nonetheless. Do you guys have any pets? Uh, no. Uh, we should get one, but we don't have any. I, I never, my wife had pets growing up, but I never, I had three pets. B- briefly. <laughs> I had my first pet what was... What happened? Well, I guess I'll, t- I guess I'll tell you. <laughs> the purposes of our activities. But I, my first pet was I won him at a carnival. It was a goldfish named Blackie because he was like part black. He had like black highlights in his scales. And uh, I brought him home, and I was four years old. You know, I threw ping pong balls in the little fish bowls, <laughs> and yeah, I landed in his. So I brought him home in a baggie. Oh, nice. And they gave me the little bowl and uh some food so but we i remember we didn't have food that first night we had to go get fish food so um my, my mom and dad had me crumble up some cheerios in his, in his uh, little bowl so i brought him upstairs to my room and then uh i wanted to show him around my room you know i had the bowl and i'm looking around like this is my window and look here's my you know uh he-man guys and here's <laughs> my globe and then you know i'm showing around and then i have this lamp I guess my mom has now. It, it was uh, a wood carving of like a tree and an old man standing by a well, and the the shade was like real thin, like balsa wood. Mm. And I always loved the way it felt. And like I wanted him, to, you got to feel this. And I picked him up out of the. I know. And I picked him up out of the, the little bowl, and like I gently rubbed <gasps> him on. And you de-scaled the, him. Yes. Oh no. And then I, I was like, that's good night, Blackie. And I put him back in the bowl and then went to sleep. The next morning, you know, I went downstairs and I was like, how's Blackie? I was like, oh, he's still sleeping. And she went upstairs and she saw that he was on his side and she did some detective work and there was, you know, rainbow scales on the thing. Oh, and no. she was, I don't know, in that moment, she was like, my son is a sociopath. <laughs> he just, but it was a pure accident. So that was my first pet. My second pet was my sister had epilepsy when I was growing up and uh, when she started getting seizures I remember my, which was a doctor appointment my parents she had to do a CAT scan so you're in the big fucking you know thing Tube. and that's terrifying so like you can get whatever you want after and she said I want a puppy and I was like that's dope because they probably meant a doll so <laughs> you know we got it we went to the shelter and we got a puppy but then <laughs> it was like too much work so like you know like within a week my parents took it back to the shelter Aww. which is foreshadowing for my third pet which was when i was let's see how old was i 15 my parents were getting divorced uh they'd been separated on and off forever and it was just about the time for the papers to be signed for like where the custody would be and so my mom went and got a puppy and so we it was beautiful his name was barkley it was a chubby little thing i played with him it was nice and then after the paper was signed, she took him back <gasps> out to the, <laughs> to no the house. Yeah, yeah, she Just pulled Just to wait the courts in the... You know, man, I, I don't want to think she was that devious about it, but that that was a sequence of events. Damn. So, I, you know, I can't I can't say that my mother's a terrible person. You know, I, 
I mean, you know, she wanted her kids. So, yeah. <laughs> but since then, I haven't had any pets. My wife had lots of cats and dogs and stuff growing up. And then when we moved in together in Trenton, probably, when was that? 2000, 2001, I guess. I moved in with her. And she had a cat, and her cat would like piss on my clothes. Oh, Jesus. And I was like, you gotta get rid of the cat. And she did, and that was the last time I lived with an animal. It's my animal saga. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get a dog now, but like, we're not gonna have kids. And Sarah is like, well, I don't want to be those people that, you know, replace kids with a dog. I'm like, well, then just don't include the dog or the child. You know, I guess I would like a dog. I'd like to give it a try. Yeah. But I don't know. I've never had a dog more than two weeks. So I don't know, maybe that third week is when it gets hairy or good. I don't know. That's when the real work starts to set in. That's when you're like, oh, wait, the dog is still shitting is in it? the house. The then dog maybe. is doing this. Dog's I mean, if the dog is even doing that. Maybe they made the right move then. I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I think getting any pet, I mean, we have just gotten, our friends found a cat in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, south yeah. of here, and, uh, my friend called me and said, oh my God, we found this beautiful little cat. You know, there are a lot of feral cats in this neighborhood. When, you know, I don't know if she's going to make it. Do you guys want a cat? And I was like, oh man, we've been talking about getting a pet for so long, but I said, fine, we'll at least foster her. And of course we met her and completely fell in love with her. Yeah, Geronimo Jane Doe. That's a beautiful cat. Formerly known as the Amazing Jane Doe. I named her Geronimo because she has a crazy fucking side. Not that Geronimo was crazy, but from what I can understand, Geronimo is like a fearless warrior, yeah. you know, and she can leap the length of this apartment if she wants to. So. Is, that, is that calico? Is that what that is? No, calico? she's white with like splotches of tabby. But I'm pretty okay. sure she's like a savannah cat. She's got, she's pretty exotic looking. She's a beautiful cat. She's a sweetheart and she was free. We didn't have to pay for adoption. Which that's, that's a little piece of your soul that you pay every day well, when yeah, you have an animal true. shitting in a box in your house. <laughs> that's, that's, that is correct. I hope that when you guys do get a pet that I get to hear all about it. Be it a dog, a cat. Hey, I grew up with chinchillas. Like a little ferret looking thing? Yeah. Why? Because I wanted one. My best <laughs> friend growing up had a chinchilla, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so I wanted to get a chinchilla, so we got one. And we actually got her, she arrived pregnant. So one day I came home from school, and there was a baby chinchilla, which is about the size of two very large cotton balls side yeah. by side. Did it already have hair? Uh, and yeah, I was born fully hairy. But the great thing, the way chinchillas nurse their young, is that they basically sit on their children's faces. Like, the baby will be on its back, and you'll see, like, the full-grown chinchilla just sitting there, and these two little feet sticking up by the side. So that's right. how I knew that my very creatively named chinchilla, Tracy, had given birth to her also creatively named child, Nina. Tracy chinchilla. Tracy and, and Nina, Nina. Nina chinchilla. Yes. Yeah, they were... They how were, old were you? I was in middle school, so, so I don't know, 12. 12. But we had had Tracy for a while, but yes, and Nina arrived, and unfortunately... The things people do. I my it was our agreement that my brother was gonna get the baby and um I lied and said, Oh well babies need to stay with their mothers for like six months whereas babies are only supposed to stay with their mothers for like two months. Oh. And so Nina went crazy. Oh yeah. And was just a crazy, crazy chinchilla. But so we ended up giving her away and then Tracy ended up dying while I was in high school and 
That's the thing with pets, they die eventually. Unless you get, aren't there those like parrots that live, live for like a hundred years? Yeah, and tortoises. Tortoises. Too. Those are like three hundred years. You can't. I don't want a bird in my house. You can't cuddle a bird. You, well, you can do whatever you want, but like, why would you want to? <laughs> it's like, it's like a hollow-boned, crinkly, sharp thing. Like, why would you cuddle? You could, but if that's your thing. But like, but that's torture. He has wings, and you're gonna put him in a cage in your house. That's torture. It's true. And a tortoise. That's just silly. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anybody out there who owns a tortoise. No, you know what? Offense. No. <laughs> you shouldn't have a tortoise. You just shouldn't. I have a friend who, uh, who has a turtle loose in her house. And, um, <laughs> loose? Turtles don't get loose. Or <laughs> <laughs> she, I don't think she cages him or tanks him, whatever you oh, do okay. with a turtle. Oh, it lives loose. It, it didn't get loose. loose. No, it didn't <laughs> get loose. <laughs> They mentioned she's on a lot of quaaludes. But animals aside, um, you, my friend, are quite a uh, man about podcasts. I have had the huge pleasure of listening to you on The Moth yeah. a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, and you do tons of storytelling, and you also host shit tons of burlesque shows, it's which fun. is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, I mean, like, <laughs> starting with the storytelling thing, how did you get into that? But then how is it being, you know, going from storytelling to hosting burlesque shows and everything a, in between? It's a very interesting, um, like, dichotomy between the two audiences. But, like, there's more similarities than you'd think. I guess, um, long story short of it, like, you know, I, I, I started hustling uh, about, you know, again, 2001, back then I was living in Trent, New Jersey, I was taking improv classes. Mm. Uh, and then I got into a company called Chicago City Limits. I was in a touring company for seven years. And that was my first, like, I didn't go to school for a performance. I did some, like, sketch comedy stuff in college, but it was just in a couple plays, but it was stuff in a lecture hall. Like, it was fun and it was great and I was glad I did it. And I met my wife and all my friends, you know, the friends that I still have today. And, all that, but it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't go to school for that, so, like, that seven years in that touring company, I got to go to 37 states, and, like, play, I mean, everywhere around the country, and that was fun, uh, um. taught me a million things, and, but in the middle of that one thing that I realized was that everyone I knew, would be like, what do you, so what do you do, I was so, so green and new and everything, uh, like, oh, I'm an improviser, that's all they would say, but like, well, I don't want to just be an improviser, like, I kind of hate improv, so, like, I don't, or not hate, it's a good tool, it's, no, you know, it's, yeah, it's not, it's, 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 it can be, but I don't think it is. So, um, people like the shows we did, but was, you know, you can only do that for so long. So anyway, uh, I started taking acting classes. I studied at a place called the T. Shriver Studio, and I did a couple plays there. I did Marvin's Room and Can't Take It With You and Night of the Iguana. In the middle of that, I started doing some other weird, like off-off stuff downtown. My friend Sharon Fogarty wrote these crazy plays and I got to like, she would put me in them and I got to like really sink myself into these just weird downtown New York plays. Um, then one day I, I, I went to go see a buddy's band at the Bitter End and I was late and I was waiting out front. Uh, I was looking on a calendar and there was something that said the moth storytelling and I asked the bouncer what it was and you know he's like, oh you you should check it out. It told me, you know, storytelling show. So I went home that night and I looked it up online. 
and it just I was like, I can do this. And I went back and I like you know a couple weeks later and put my name in a hat and I told a terrible story about uh, my very first line I ever said on a storytelling stage in New York was uh, after they introduced me, I got my stage I said I like to put my balls on things. And it was a story about how I like to go to people's houses and like put my balls on stuff in their house, not. <laughs> Just so, and I wouldn't tell them. I just, and it wouldn't be a food product. It would like a ruler, <laughs> or you know, like a pair of scissors, or like a bookmark. So like, only I would know. And I just, and then there was an incident where somebody, I got in trouble, and then there was like, <laughs> with a coworker, and then there was that was you know, so that was the story, and it sucked. And uh, but I got hooked, so I kept going back. And then I went to the mall for like a year and a half to every show, wrote a new story every week. Wow. And it was like going to school, and like, and I just fell in love with it. And then, you know, I, I started volunteering for for the Moth, and and I was teaching uh, storytelling in the Moth Shop Community Education Program. I started teaching storytelling there, and that made me start to look at things in a totally different way because I had to then I I taught improv and I taught other stuff, but this was. I don't know, like this is something that's so instinctual, so I just have to be able to explain this instinctual thing that I was doing. Because I've been telling stories my whole life, everyone has, you know, but it, I, you know, I've always done it. Um, and then I started understanding it, and then, I, then I don't know, everything coalesced, and I started winning the Moth Slams, and then I started hosting those, and then, then one day I went to go see Hasi Tatsi Burlesque, when it was the, the, Basement. Uh, in uh, what was was it Luna? Therapy. No, it was not therapy. Mm. That crazy French guy owned it, and there were the boxes upstairs, and I forget what that place was called. It was like, anyway, like Sixth Street and B or something in the East. I forget the name of the place. So, one of the girls, one of the performers, like, couldn't make it. The train got fucked up. So, like, Brad and Cindy were like the cherry pits and Hanson Bradlaugh who are ma- married and, you know, do that show with Joe the Shark, um, they were like, you know, can you tell a story? I was like, I'm sure. You know, so I just, what I did, I just put my sunglasses on and I dialed everything up to 11. And instead of saying, like, told the story about when I drove an ice cream truck when I was in, in well, I, was, I guess I was still in college, but I wasn't really going to college anymore. And instead of like, you know, I had a, you know, I drove an ice cream, a tiny ice truck, you know, in Piscataway, New Jersey, when I was 21, I was like, when I was 21 years old, you know, I started like that, and I just made everything really filthy. And then, then, like, you know, Joe Shark recommended me to other producers and hired me for another show, and then I hosted Kitty Nights, I hosted Original Sin. Uh, and then hosting Original Sin taught me a million things, because, like, that's, and Kitty Nights, too. Like, OC, particularly, it was, you know, it's like a heavy metal bar in Park Slope, and, you know, just animals would attend that show, and, like, it taught me how to deal with hecklers, it taught me how to hold attention, it taught me that, as a host, the show is not about me at all, it taught me that I'm supposed to be the voice of the audience, but with that responsibility it means they're not allowed to talk they've agreed to let me speak for them and say the thing that they're thinking about what they just saw it taught me a million things about hosting and then you know like i said i was hosting the moth and and that was a piece of cake after doing 
you know, oh, God, a burlesque yeah. crowd. So, you know, so then, you know, I still, I tell stories, I just told a story of Bedlam Burlesque the other day, I did Epic Win the other day, I'm hosting Shark Fight Sideshow this Friday, oh, you know, I'm telling a story at Homo Erectus at the Stonewall for Matt Knife. I'm, Brilliant. Yeah, it'll be fun. I used to perform, my band got started at the Stonewall. BTK band? Yeah, we used to, we used to do shows there years ago. I miss that place. It's, it's a, such a crazy ridiculous <laughs> joint like the downstairs just looks like a dive bar and then you go up the stairs and there's just pictures of big hairy dudes <laughs> like it's like <laughs> the, it's like the, at least it was years ago like i'm sure it still is it's just like bear gallery like going up the stairs <laughs> and then like red and black tile floor and like mirrors and everything's leopard print and red and Disco ball wow. fabulous up there. I've not been up there. It's fabulous. That's oh where the band got started. God. So you know. Anyway, it's like like the the difference is like I don't know. I could tell the same story at a burlesque show as I would at a moth show or any other like storytelling show. It's just a matter of just fiddling with the dials a little bit. I remember I told a story once at Original Sin a couple years ago and that was on a Monday night and literally Thursday night of that week I told the same story on a stage at the Metropolitan Museum of Art at a Moth main stage. Wow. It was the same story but in one of them I was wearing sunglasses and said motherfucker a lot and the other one people cried. It was like you know it was really amazing. You can do both it's just you can do you can do anything you can but you just have to know I don't know just it's just messing with the dials. And you always tell the truth, but you just mess with, like, you know, turn this one up to 11, turn this one down to 6, and, you know, try to find balance. Yeah. Because, I, I don't know, I'm real lucky, man, like, knock on wood. Like, it's been, I'm, you know, I get to work with amazing people. The burlesque community is unbelievable. It drives my wife a little crazy. Because, like, half of the time, I'm hanging around with naked ladies. I'm like... <laughs> That's always been a dream of mine. <laughs> so she knows that. So she isn't that upset. But she's also like, I come home with glitter all over my face. And she's like, you know, it's like in the 50s, somebody would get in trouble for lipstick on the collar. And I have glitter on my lips. And she's like, how did I get that? Like, I was hugging everybody. She's like, ugh. She's like, you're not what, like, husbands. Husbands aren't like this. But yours is. <laughs> she's like, yeah, you're right. I always say, nobody made you marry me. And, <laughs> and that's, that's a good reminder, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, um, I, one of my favorite um, names for... Yeah, yeah, you can go. Um, one of my favorite names for glitter that I learned through the burlesque community, actually through the lens of the stripping community, mm -hmm. um, is divorce dust. <laughs> you yeah. do not all ladies who work in strip clubs they cannot wear uh, glitter because it will get <laughs> trapped in and glitter is the herpes of the burlesque world you, you know you cannot get rid of it it doesn't matter if you have been <coughs> if you haven't attended a burlesque show or been backstage at one for a year glitter so, will still even five years yeah. glitter will still turn up and be like on your face for yeah. an important interview I love when you see on like Facebook or whatever one of the burlesque ladies or the boys too is like sweeping up their apartment and then they show like at the end it's like like a little like a picture of this pile of like a little bit of dust and just multicolored glitter <laughs> like there's glitter everywhere 
It cracks me up, man. Yeah, I actually have to, instead of mopping my bathroom, I have to vacuum it. I'm sure. To get all of the glitter into it. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to glitter turning up in the cat shit. Apparently that is something that will that happen. That will happen. I would, I would almost guarantee it. Yeah. And I'm not a doctor. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you do have that experience. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you've, I mean, I have certainly tried my hand at um, storytelling, and I, and I mean, like, I did it twice. I did, you did, you were at the Edinburgh Fringe uh-huh. this past summer. Yeah, last, it was 2012, yeah. Where you got the most handsome tramp stamp I have ever seen. I did. It's a, be- it's a beautiful glass of whiskey on the rock. <laughs> right at the base <laughs> of your back. It's beautiful. It, it, is, it is actually it, a gorgeous, gorgeous tattoo. The guy did a hell of a job. I did my research. I went to a really nice tattoo place on the Royal Mile, and and the guy was bamboozled as to why he's like, "You want a tramp stamp?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was afraid it wouldn't translate, uh, you know." But it did, and I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and halfway through the tattoo, where like he was just about done, he made me get up and like show everybody else, and like he brought everybody else in the shop. He's like, "And he, I'm not gonna do the action." He's like, "This, I want everybody coming here to see the most beautiful tramp stamp in all of the world." Oh. And and it is. It's a beautiful it glass of whiskey, and it's just swirling with that swirl that the alcohol gets. It's, it looks like a sunset in a glass. It's, it's gorgeous. True. It's and true. I, I've never seen it. Yeah. <laughs> in photograph and mirror reflection yeah, and that alone. Doesn't, yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, that was that was quite a uh, I, that was my um, first foray, and I think we'd actually gotten too. a tattoo that day. It, or maybe the yeah, it was that it was that day we did that twenty-four hour marathon, and and. I remember you, you showing up and like we, we had that open mic thing where I just opened up to anybody to tell stories and I was like, who's next? And you're like, I'll be next. I couldn't see in the back. I was like, what's your name? Legs. And I was like, I <laughs> know one. Look like one. Is that you? You son of a bitch. And then and it was you. And then and then it was my world's colliding because I was there on a corporate job. And like, <laughs> funny, like these people. Okay, so those people. It was, it was for a whiskey company. They saw that show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh my God. And then, that was a couple years ago, and then it just shows how luck works with stuff, right? Like these people had flown over, to, they had a campaign about storytelling with their whiskey, right? And they flown over, happened to arrive in New York that night, that moth show at the, at the Met was the first show they saw. They were so exhausted they fell asleep after the first storyteller, that was me. So I was really the only story they saw that night. They loved it, and then they, they contacted me, and I was working for them for like three years, like flying all around the world. Oh my gosh. Drinking whiskey and telling stories. Like like once oh a month I'd be in Scotland, I got to go to Monaco, I was in London a bunch. It was amazing. It was the greatest gig ever. And that was the culmination of this like three year campaign that we did three weeks at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And they, uh, they, they let me, uh, let me, they paid me to produce it. And like, I had a show from London from people I met when I was there, and then I brought the Liar show from New York. And we did like two shows a day, and I got to bring friends, like Anthony Bragg came, and Andy Christie did the Liar show, and uh, Fear Eisenberg, and oh, um, you know, it was, it was awesome, man. And so then the last thing we did was this 24 hour storytelling marathon, which I came up with months before. And as we got to it, I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. <laughs> it was stupid. But we ended up having people, we did shows from noon until 11 o'clock, and then, or in 10 o'clock, 
from noon until well we did from noon until 11 at night we okay. had shows and oh, then right. we did from 11 until like 9 the next morning we did like like an open mic kind of like whoever wanted to get up could come in it was all the whiskey you could drink and whoever well, wanted not when I arrived oh, by that I time that's right they got rid of it by then yeah and I was like yeah. what but we had stories until 7.30 in the morning. Wow. And at 7.30 in the morning, we all, like, bleary-eyed, like, went outside and, like, watched the sun and had a cup of coffee. And at 8 o'clock, more people showed up. And then it was amazing. Wow. There was a half hour without without people on the stage in, like, 24 hours. It was really nuts. That's incredible. I, was, I, I showed up at, like, 3-something. Yeah, and we were, we were still right in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Oh my God! And that was great. You told that great story of, you know, like discovering who you were through your performance, and you know, it's like, and the best stories are always about identity and choice. And like that one's about the relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really fantastic. And then mm-hmm. you did that show for Bear. Yep. When I did that last September, last September October, I think it was. Which is brilliant. I was just thinking about that show the other day. It was such a great idea to swap burlesque performers with storytellers yeah. and so the burlesquers had to tell the story and the storytellers had the script yeah and everybody had like help each other with their stuff and every, everybody was doing something new yeah which i like i like shows where everybody's afraid <laughs> you know Fear is a great motivator yeah keeps you honest i just did that show with rosie larouge uh, a couple weeks ago it was called rosie larouge is afraid to sing and because she has a, a terrible fear of singing Really? Like this, physically ingrained into her body. Like she, I, I she works with Shelly Watson, Shelly Singing Siren, uh, who's an amazing singing teacher. And I've been to some of the lessons because we did a, we did a duet last year uh, for a burlesque show, and just like Rosie would start to sing and shake and cry, and it was like a physical, visceral. You could see her. She's so tiny. You could see her trying to make herself smaller. It was amazing. Wow. So we did this show where she she sang like nine songs. It was like a cabaret show. And then like everybody else, she sang a duet with Shelly, a duet with me. Uh, you know, some of the burlesque choir came and sang. Everybody, and everybody did stuff they were afraid of. Shelly did a an aria that she hadn't sang since they told her not to sing it in college. Cause she wasn't good enough. Oh my god! And it was gorgeous. Uh, who else? Like, you know, Rosie just sang all these songs. I did a, a uh, I, I sang uh, "Thunder Road" uh, by Bruce Springsteen because it's such a. I, it's, that song terrifies me because it's so powerful. And like that, I had a guy, my friend Joe Yoga, come in and play guitar, and you know, I said I got to sing that, and that was fun. And like the whole show was everybody being scared, and then at the very end, everybody came on stage and then we had uh because we had like the choir there we sang bohemian rhapsody because like we oh, had a choir one that sang bohemian rhapsody and we gave lyrics to the audience and everybody sang it together it was this really cathartic night of like everybody seeing people just about shooting their pants in fear <laughs> and then it's good to be scared man if you're not scared when you're performing or creating something you're doing it wrong i think Absolutely. It should almost be just like you're all, you almost have to force it out of yourself because it's like that fear is like this mesh barrier. You gotta like push through it. You have to. Or what's the point? Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to Dirty Martini years ago, and it was more within the context of performer versus audience, which was 
the performer a great act will challenge the audience. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even as a self-reflexive exercise, a performer should always challenge themselves if they want to keep, you know, keep their game fresh. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, burlesque is like painting in that, you know, it can be, it's, it's, it's bigger than just that, those classic strip pieces. It's, it's so much bigger than that. It's a medium now. And for people to, you know, constantly go there. And so same thing with storytelling. I mean, it's like, fucking go there, push yourself, do it. Because, I mean, worst thing, worst case scenario, you fuck up and then you try again. Yeah, then, yeah it's just one after one story. And then when it's over, you can do it next time. Yeah. That's, yeah, you have, man, you have to, you have to push yourself in that way. You have to, I think, I try not to spoon feed anything to anyone listening. Like, you know, I never end a story with like a moral or a lesson. The thing I learned from my experience is what I learned. The thing you learn from hearing about it is your business. Yeah. Like, you know, if an audience member is watching a burlesque act, the reason why why you were inspired to do that act is for you, man. But then once you do it, see, it's also kind of freeing because then, like, you you you're not trying to. You can't. It's hard, like manipulating people can be messy, and there's in performance there's a there's a certain amount of manipulation that's just going to happen by nature. But like, you you do your acting, you let it out there, and like, you know, it's up to them what they think is sexy, what they think is funny, what you know. It's it's amazing when it takes you by surprise when you're doing your actor, you're doing you're doing your thing, and you think it's going to be one reaction, and it turns out to be another. Yeah. Very smelly dog sitting next to me right now. It's not so bad. I was in a caviar guy the other day. A guy farted so bad. Oh, no. And it was hot, and we were on the BQE. And, like, I, I was in the back, and I just, like, it hit me. I was like, well, it could be something from outside. And then the motherfucker, I saw him, like, look up in the, like, glance up in the mirror and then put down both of the front windows. Oh. I was like, you son of a bitch. His... <laughs> His tip went down. <laughs> it, it did. To hold that in, man. Do yeah. you do you remember the soda or the beverage clearly Canadian? Mm-hmm. It was years ago. And yeah. It was a clear, free-flavored beverage, very bubbly. Exactly. Bottle. It was lovely. I mean, they yeah. raspberry and boysenberry. I don't it know. Was nice. I remember when I was in high school, I had to take a cab somewhere, and my high school... I went to boarding school, um, used this one cab company that had like a set amount of cab drivers, and so we got to know all of them really well, and there was this one guy, he was really nice, he, and th- 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 there were, it wasn't New York City, like there were no dividers, like it was just open, like town car style, mm-hmm. and he chugged a clearly Canadian while we were on our way to wherever we were going, we were just talking about stuff, he then proceeded to belch with such force. All the windows were up. I'm pre- it hit the windshield and just looped around the car. And you could and just, feel the funk. I, 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 but it's like, it, like there was wind involved with it. Like, like my hair blew a little bit, and the smell was unbelievable. And I was taught to, you know, not, you know, just not to react to things like that. Mm. And so I just sort of sat there and was like, Was it a finish in school? No, that's that. That would be my walk. My wasp upbringing, <laughs> thanks to my mother. Um, yeah, no, that was that was brutal, and I don't think I could ever look at another thing clearly Canadian the same <laughs> after that. Now. But yeah, car things in small spaces, man, that involve humans. I don't like it. It's not. <laughs> Rarely do they work out well. No bueno. <laughs>
<laughs> there were people on the subway today selling everything today. I saw a new thing today I never saw. There was a guy selling, first there was a guy selling the fruit snacks, you know, for a dollar. So, you know, like the little gummy fruit snacks. And then he had two kids with him, so he was hustling that way. But they didn't look like his kids. <laughs> so I don't know, like, where he got, I, I don't want the fruit snacks anyway, but so it's a moot point. Then this other guy had a boom box, and like, I'm listening to music, and he starts. Like, I thought he was selling his rap CD, right? He's like, 21 tracks. I was like, I'm listening to this. Listening to this. Anyway, so I wanted to see. I, well, he kept playing stuff in his boombox. I was like, well, let me see what this is. He was selling a mix CD of, like, soul classics. But, like, all the played out soul classics. Let's Stay Together, Sexual Healing, uh, you know. Like, all the ones that, ever, that are in, you know, commercials. You know, mm-hmm. like, all the, you know. And I, but I'd never seen that before. Somebody like he was really proud of himself that he was selling other people's music for three dollars. I couldn't. I never saw that before. It was so. It was like, and that's the funny thing. The subway, like, really, all bets are off. Like yeah. anything can happen in there. There's a lady in Queens on the seventh car, the Cucaracha lady. She does this. She's got to be. She's either eighty or 7,000 years old, <laughs> one of the other, like she's an ageless, walking demigod, and like, she wears, always wears like, like crazy pajamas, and like, some crazy, like, like, tunic shirt, with like, like, a, a necklace made out of lobsters, and then like, uh, some crazy headwear, and nuts glasses, like glasses like Meshach Taylor wore in Mannequin, like, crazy. And, she, and then she <gasps> plays a melodica, that thing you blow in that has keys. Yeah. And then sometimes she has a, a little boombox with like a drum loop, and she just does a, a, a she does a medley of songs depending on the season. She always finishes with La Cucaracha, and it's it's the bomb. <laughs> she's so crazy, and you don't know. I always give her a dollar because because I always end up videotaping her with my phone or taking pictures so I can show my wife and we're like, look, look who's the rock that is and we like high five because it's like catching, you know, it's like seeing, you know, like the Yeti, you know, only but, well, I guess more often than the Yeti, but like, like who's the rock that is special. When you put anybody in any kind of a box, like a subway car or a, a, a regular car, <laughs> how did this happen? And then people are just going to be weird because you can't go anywhere. No. I'm fucking tired. I have to say, like, more power to them, but I am so tired of the Showtime guys. Mm. Especially, like, the first few troops, for anybody who has not been on the New York subway, there is the there is these bunch of groups, and you know that it's them because they will enter the car no matter what time of day, whatever the commute hour subway density population is, and it'll go, Showtime, ladies and gentlemen, Showtime, Showtime, folks. And that's when you know to, you know sort of back up so you don't get hit by hurtling people down the center yeah, they of the... Flip, they do, they jump, it's stupid. I saw one group of them, because like, the, there's a, there are a few core groups who are really, really good at what sure. they do, and they're a bit more respectful, like if people don't want to give them money, fine, but shit, I saw this one group, they basically forced people to move out of their seats. And mm-hmm. I was just like... Oh. Okay, you're not doing that bit today. As Switch to the next bit. Kiss, I was like... Yeah. Guys, you cannot do that. Yeah. Come on. It's it, ma- it makes me angry, man. Cause like if that's you live in New York, you don't have a personal space. You know, everywhere else in the world, you have a car. You know, and like that's where you cry. That's where you do your secret eating. That's where you you know like your car is 
your your that's your place. You know, you scream and listen to music and all that. And like this is New York, the closest thing you have is the subway. So that's where everybody cries and they're eating that candy bar like real fast and like all that stuff. If I was driving my car around, some motherfucker jumped in at a stoplight and started doing flips. <laughs> <laughs> like he'd be a carcass. Like you can't do that. It's like this is our shared agreed space. Like don't don't do flips all over. Don't kick me in the face. I'm just trying to get to I'm I'm meeting somebody for lunch. <laughs> don't kick me in the face. I didn't ask for this. You're not getting a dollar. You're just not. How dare you? Ugh. Terrible. The Cucaracha lady is the only lady. Or there's that one guy, I want to bring it down, but he's got no legs. Yes. And he just, he's got that big, big coffee can. He just puts it in front of him. I'll give him whatever's in my pocket. He's, you ever seen the kid? Yeah, yeah. He's in it. Oh, he was doing mm-hmm. the, I have no legs. Yep. I have no legs. That Harmony Corrine did that. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that movie back in whenever that was late nineties. Yeah, that was like that was a groundbreaker. I mean, as far as and that was yeah. yeah. I mean, Chloe Sevigny was like yeah. super on the rise and like everything. I I just remember because I I want to say that came out like yeah mid nineties late nineties. Ninety seven. I bet ninety six ninety seven. Right around the time I graduated high school. I didn't. I hadn't really, to be honest, like been in New York yet. I had no frame of reference of what New York was. I was going to college, not that far away, Rutgers University in New Brunswick. It was on the New Jersey transit line. But I, when I, was, I grew up in South Jersey, which I'm going to the city, we went to Philadelphia. So like, New York was out of my frame of reference. I remember, like, right then, that did a number on me about the idea of, even to, to this day, people I know that are born and raised in New York, I just, I, I'm wary of them because, like, this is a weird place to grow up in. And there's something about that movie, I know it was sensationalized, but like, it didn't seem out of the realm of possibility that like, that's what it was like growing up here. Especially in the summer, it's like, all once summer's here, and you got eight million people in this, on this island with these other concrete islands right near, and everything's concrete and hot. Everybody, like all bets are off. Yep. Just about anything could happen. You could, like somebody could just walk up and stab somebody, you'd be like, I do it too. Like you don't like there's like in the in the spring or in the fall, like you, you everything's too beautiful around here to do anything like that. The winter everybody just hides, but like in the summer it seems like it's just yeah. Insane. Summertime people go crazy. Yeah, it's too many goddamn people. It smells so bad. Yeah, I actually I was born here, but grew up just outside no the offense. city. No, no offense. No, 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 none taken. You are a weirdo, though. Uh, I mean, and, you know, with pride. Yeah, no, and I, I mean it as a compliment. <laughs> Thank <But> like, you. <laughs> you go, you many people know you as Legs Malone. That's just like a symptom of being a weird person. <laughs> That's, you know. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. That is correct. Um, we moved, we, I grew up outside the city and we moved back in when I was in fifth grade, or to start fifth grade. Mm. That's a really a tough age. fucked up age or like time in general to like completely change like go from being a very big fish in a small pond to being a like guppy in manhattan and so for me there i remember moving into the city and there were girls i went to an all-girls school and there were girls who had grown up in manhattan Mm -hmm. upper east side and there were girls who moved way faster and did things that I that had never even occurred to me. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching kids and being like, "Holy shit!" Like I totally 
not that I know those people, but I I kind of knew a lot of that was girls. Happening. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then some of them, some of the kids growing up in Manhattan, you grow up fast in ways that aren't necessarily, you know, par for the course with your age. Or it's stimulus, man. You get so well, much stimulus. Exposure to so That's much to everything. It's it's coming at you, and your little development brain can't handle it. Nope. Like you see, seven-year-old kids in New York City have haircuts that 31 year olds should have like you're too young to figure out that that's how hair should look and that's how that kid looks no it's you know it's that's <laughs> not right like it just you can see they're already sophisticated mm-hmm. at, you know like, sophisticated but there's there's also especially if you look in private schools it's like a hat added. it's like a sophistication hat it's not mm-hmm. really sophistication but they wear it like a cloak around them you Remember the world famous Bob theory about cloak of cool? Oh. Yeah, it talks about that. Like you wear, you wear that that and that cloak of cool, which that literally, what she calls it, becomes yeah. your identity, oh, and totally. just gets heavier and heavier and heavier as you get older, and you oh, end yeah. up just having to let it go and be like, whatever, I'm yeah, a weirdo. So. God bless it. Yeah, yeah. But there were, um, I remember there were kids, you know, who just, especially in private school, there were a lot of all girls private school there were a lot of girls whose fathers made a lot of money and mm-hmm. whose mothers didn't work mm-hmm. um, because they didn't have to and that in itself sets up for a very unique dynamic yeah. you know a lot of girls especially whose fathers are workaholics especially wall street guys who have a shit ton of money who are not going to pay attention to their little girls and could well be cheating on their wives yeah. you know and so all these girls end up growing up saying, oh, my only economy is my beauty. You know, it's only what I own. It's only how good I look. So, yeah, as a seven-year-old, having a fucking $400 haircut, having a personal trainer at age 13, getting a nose job at age 16, getting boob implants at age 16. Cool brother, man. I mean, straight up. And it was, I mean, for me, who was, I was very innocent. And it was, it was a real learning curve. Yeah. And one of, actually, one of the girls who reminded me very much of, some of the girls in kids ended up dying of a heroin overdose her yeah. freshman year of college, and it was it was too one of those much things too where soon, like, man. What the fuck? There's man, there's certain things that kids shouldn't be exposed to. It's not about protecting children because ki- children should be in danger, and children should die. I know that is a that is a a it's a that is a controversial it's a controversial statement, statement <laughs> but I stand by it because the kids that. Like the kids that should die are the ones like that's Darwin. <laughs> that's Darwinism taking care of itself. Like the kid that should have died when he was seven because he was too stupid to know how to ride a bicycle. If he trigger warning for anybody who knows a <laughs> seven year old that died. But like but like that kid when he turns twenty one and he's in front of me at a at a coffee spot and I just want a cup of coffee and he's getting a, a macchiato with caramel syrup in it. Get out of my way! You should have died when you were seven. You're too soft to be living now. I was—I grew up in a little small town in South Jersey. It was beautiful. I loved it. it. I mean, it wasn't bucolic or amazing, but it was to me. It was like you know, it was small town. We had farms. I got to ride my bike you grew everywhere. Up near where my mom grew up. Where was that? In Morristown. Really close to there, like three towns over. There's a bunch oh, wow. of little tiny towns all right next to each other, right there, and they're. Uh, in Bronson County, Morristown, yeah, it's like, Hill. yeah, that's a little, I'm a little north of Cherry Hill, I'm a, like, I grew up a little, like, 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 
four miles northwest of Morristown. Like it's all the same. And I went to Catholic school from grade school to high school. So like those were all the kids I knew weren't from one town. They were all from all over the place. Mm-hmm. So like I, you know, like that was nice. You weren't just in one spot. And did you have what summer. could be termed a relatively normal childhood? <clears throat> Not at all. <laughs> uh, there's no such thing as normal. I figured that out early. But um, you know, there was nothing. I don't. There was no. I mean, my parents were separated on and off forever, so there was. It was very chaotic in my household always. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't change any of it because I like you know like I like who I am and I like who I'm becoming and that's all because of you know like how I grew up and it, and the choices that led me to and et cetera et cetera moving forward. But um, you know, it was we were lucky. We had everything we needed. We didn't have everything we wanted. We had some stuff we wanted, but we did have everything we needed. There was always stuff to eat. I always had a roof over my head. You know, like it was hard, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have a, we didn't have a lot. And there were times where it was really tough. But like, you know, I was very loved. My mother loved me and still does. And I had, you know, I. I was uh, I was very blessed, you know. I know a lot of people that had less and had harder times. You know, I had my hard times, but they were mine. Mm-hmm. So they seemed like the center of the world because they were, because they were mine. But um, yeah, I was I was really I was really blessed, like to to grow up where I did, and, and uh, I wouldn't I don't think I could live there anymore. And that's like the the weird part of it. Maybe I'd retire down in South Jersey one day. And when I go back down there, I can be there for like two days. Because like now, I want, like, I, I'm always like, I'm up until four or five in the morning. And there's not many things you can do at four or five in the morning in a farm town. Apart from watch cable. Yeah, except television. I just can't, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know why that made me melancholy all of a sudden. Like, I, like, I miss home. I, I don't get to go home much at all now. I, I'm going to go down next weekend, I think. I got to see my grandmother. She's got Alzheimer's. Mm. And I saw her about a year and a half ago. And I thought that was going to be goodbye. And I, in a lot of ways, it kind of was. From what my cousins were telling me that, you know, she's far gone now. Alzheimer's sucks, man. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. I got it in my jeans. My mom, my grandmother had it. My mom was going to get it. Although I have to say, I heard something really interesting about Alzheimer's, and this is from a more alternative health point of view, um, that Alzheimer's is actually a manifestation, uh, and of course there can be little glitches here and there, but Alzheimer's is a manifestation of needing to repress and forget stuff from very early on. It's like a, like a learned um, reflex. And it just goes into overdrive once you know you reach does, a certain point of maturity. It does biolog- biologically, physically change your brain though. Yeah. So it, it oh, like absolutely. The, yeah. But I'm just curious if there is, you know, especially if there's a root in it, like a behavioral. Yeah, root. like like some sort of yeah behavioral or emotional root that could trigger that you know neurological uh, or degenerative response ultimately. Like if somewhere deep inside someone's brain, you know, there's a thought where, you know. I, this needs to be forgotten. Like this is too painful. I just need to bury it. I need to do away with it. And then, like somehow, like that impulse just goes out of control. I mean, that's just 
I mean, I don't know because like the, the one of the things with Alzheimer's is that it really attacks your short term memory, and a lot of times the long term memory stays intact. Like you can remember, you know, the the dinner you had the day after your wedding, but you can't remember if you just shit your pants. Like you can't, like if something had just happened, you know. But you can remember. It's it's fascinating. I hope to die well before that becomes a problem for me. And so that would be that'd be nice. I still hope you have a very long time. Too. Don't fucking say that. <laughs> <laughs> Give me another fifteen years. Like I'll I'll pack it no. all in. No, it's like YOLO, man. <laughs> That's some bullshit right there. That is some bullshit. No. Right <laughs> that would be No YOLO. No, YOLO is bullshit. But but you but no, I mean I how how long would you want to live? And all honestly, give me seventy years old would be my upper limit. I don't I don't want sixty five would be better. Fifty seven would be great because then it would be like I'd still young enough to be tragic. And there would be, you know, people rending their clothes and wailing at my funeral. And I'm still if I live too long, everybody else will be dead. That's a, I mean, <laughs> hey, that that is a valid point. Yeah, that is a very valid point. What would you? What, how long do you want to live? I just want to live as long as. I mean, I don't have. I saw a psychic in college who told me that I was going to live until I was ninety-three, and that freaked me out. Not because I don't care. I mean, yeah. ninety-three grand old age. My family tends to live very old, but for me, it was like, oh my god, and I could start doing the math like. Does that mean I only have, you know, 70 some odd years left at the time? I mean, yeah. I was in college. And I didn't like it at all, so I did a lot of like cancel, cancel, clear, like, no, fuck that. Only 70 life. years left? That's so many years. When I, when I got, but, it, but I don't know, for quality of life, I mean, I feel, especially as you get older, when you take care of your bullshit, life just gets better and better and better and better and better. That is, I remember reading that one time that uh, the, there was a poll done somewhere that of you know people in their 20s and their 30s 40s etc etc and they said what was the best decade of your life and the people in the 30s said their 30s people in the 40s said their 40s people in the 50s said their 50s and all the way up to people in their 70s like because i think it's because you glean more wisdom i think you i think there's people there's something that people who are in their 70s and 80s know that they can't tell us that like there's no way for them to really describe it because you have to discover it for yourself. There is, I yeah. think, like when you get you get a certain amount of wisdom as you grow older, I think there's something there that is, I don't know, some kind of truth that start, starts to develop in your brain that you don't even know you don't know until you know it. And, you know, like there's something to it, but I don't need to know all that. Give me, I'll eat a bullet when I'm 55. It's good. <laughs> no, no, that makes you sad. I always tell my wife. But it's your life now. Well, my my wife and I are both children of divorces, and uh, we decided that our marriage will end in a murder suicide. Like at one point, that's how, <laughs> we'll, do that's how we'll do it. Because divorce isn't on the table, so we figure murder suicide would be the way to go. <laughs> different strokes for different folks, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is, I, I love that we So to answer your question, I didn't have a normal childhood. <laughs> <laughs> God bless that, especially if it made you the person you are today. I'm blessed, man. <laughs> no doubt. 
I, I love that we've covered, we started talking about pets, including the cacophony that yeah. occurred, and then like moving all the way through, and here we are talking about murder suicide. Murder suicide, man. That's what I call true love. I mean, it's not what I call true love, but for these intents and purposes, I call true love. <laughs> I think that's. I think it's. It's twisted, totally macabre, and beautiful in its own way. That's, I'm the twisted, totally macabre, beautiful of burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, if people want to find you on the magical interweb, mm-hmm. uh, where can they go? I should have a website, but I don't. Uh, I do a lot of stuff on Facebook. My name is Peter Aguero. A G U E R O. I'm always talking about the shows I have there. I have a band called the. BTK Van stands for Bring the Kids. Uh, we're gonna be our last show is gonna be in December. Your we're, last show? Yeah, we've been it's been six years, so I need to move. I just it, I gotta do something else. Yeah. I feel like I've said everything I can with my silly band, and <laughs> so we have shows, six more shows throughout the fall. Uh, you can look at horsetrade.info uh, about when those shows will be. Man, just. Do a Google search of me. You'll find some stuff. I don't Are you still working the moth? Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. I, I host regularly the first Monday of the month at the Bell House in Gowanus. I host that slam there. Uh, I, I've started recently hosting main stage shows and some stuff on the road. Uh, for information about the moth, you can go to themoth.org. And if you listen to the moth podcast, you know that very well already. Yeah. I think they say at the beginning and the end of every single podcast. Themoth.org. If I remember correctly. Peter Guerrero, it has been a pleasure and an honor to Thank have you, you here. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back again and again Fuck yeah. and again. Anytime. And I want to hire you anyway, so, you know, good luck. <laughs> okay. Thank you, darling. Thank you. guys for listening to episode two of Lunch with Legs and my interview with Mr. Peter Aguero. To learn more about Peter, please check out themoth.org. They have a great profile of him as well as some videos of his storytelling uh, events. And do please also check out the BTK Band, which is about to have their final show in December of this year. That's 2013, if for some reason you're listening far in the future. And to see a great video of him and his beautiful wife, Miss Sarah Peters, talking about Sarah's uh, epilepsy, I mean, just straight up, and how they deal with that together, uh, please visit tedmed.com to see a joint storytelling effort by the two of them. Thanks again so much for listening, and I wish you a fabulous week. And down there's the handsomest man in town What a smile he's got Get that dial He's hot, me for him No joke, I could love him if he was broke